0: 1 Kings chapter 18 is where we're going to be. If you want to turn there, we are today. We're, we're continuing our series, God of the Mountains. I think this is the last of this series, uh, but uh, sometimes that changes a little bit as the week goes on. Uh, but we're we're the series we've been doing, the God of God of the Mountains, and it, it's uh, we've talked about different mountains and different things that they mean, and we talked about the mountain of sacrifice where. Uh, The place where every follower follower of Jesus comes to where we have to lay that which is most precious to us on the altar of God in faith and obedience. And we talked about the mountain of pride. Uh, Last week we talked about the mountain of deceit. And today we're going to be talking about the mountain of revival. The mountain of revival. Mount Carmel. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to beginning in verse 17. I'm just warning you ahead of time. We're reading a lengthy passage of scripture today. So just hang with me while we read this because it's important that we get the whole picture. So 1 Kings chapter 18 beginning in verse 17. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said, "Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder, by the way, I'm not going to bring it out today, but it's kind of even funnier than what it comes out as in the English here, because when he says perhaps he's busy, literally and I hope I don't offend anybody Elijah was saying he might be sitting on the toilet. That's what he's really saying when he's saying he's busy. So anyway. Uh, I don't even know why I shared that. It just struck me, and I just think it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious, personally. So let me read that again. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he prepared, excuse me, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, you shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars of water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also looked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God of Elijah, God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel, we, we turn to you the same way they did. We, we just pray, God, come fire of God we need you we long for you we we ache for you as a thirsty man in a dry desert land longs for water as a hungry man cries for bread we cry out oh come Holy Spirit we desperately need you today God and Lord we need you in this moment we need you to speak to us we need you to stir us we need you to change us so we say come Holy Spirit have your way we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. By the time the 18th chapter of the book of 1 Kings rolls around Israel was in a moral and spiritual decline, unprecedented in its national history, the nation had plunged to the bottom. Ahab was king, about whom it was said he did more evil in the sight of God than any who had come before him. He had married Jezebel. And Jezebel had reintroduced the most evil practices of Canaanite religion. 450 priests of Baal were supported by the treasury of the king. Another 400 priests of Asherah, which was a different god. And that's 850 men practicing a kind of wicked, immoral witchcraft. Furthermore, human sacrifice had been reintroduced. The, 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 the people of Israel were throwing their babies alive into the fires of the god Molech every kind of immorality including temple prostitution had grown to epidemic proportions in the nation true spiritual religion seemed to have utterly died out but then god moved in the heart of this man elijah in a magnificent and a powerful way you know in the verses just before this story there's a fascinating prelude to this story we didn't read it for the sake of time But in that story, in those verses, Elijah meets a a representative of King Ahab in an open field somewhere. And Elijah says to him, he says, go and and tell your master, go find King Ahab and tell him to come and meet me on top of Mount Carmel. And the servant says to Elijah, I find it very funny. He says, what have I done to you that you want to get me killed? It's just funny to me because he says, because I know you And I know how full of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, of God you are. And I know that when I go to my master and say, Elijah is thus and so, that he will go to that place to find you. And by that time, God will have picked you up in the Holy Spirit and transported you somewhere else. You'll be gone and the king will have my head. And, and, and I mean, wouldn't you like to be so full of the Holy Spirit that people just never knew where you're going to land? Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be exciting? You know, wouldn't that be wonderful to have a reputation that the power of God is so mighty in you that at any moment you may or may not appear uh, or disappear in a certain situation? Well, Elijah literally laughs at the man and he says, No, I promise you that I'll be waiting right where I told you I'd be. Go get the king. So Ahab gets the message and he brings his whole entourage. They all arrive for for this confrontation with the man of God, Elijah. And when Ahab comes to meet Elijah, this is where we began reading in verse 17. His opening line is classic. Because King Ahab says to Elijah, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? is that you, you trouble? This is King Ahab, the husband of Jezebel, the murderer of Naboth. This is incredible. He says, are you the one who's been troubling Israel? Is that you, Elijah? And King Ahab accuses Elijah of being a troublemaker. Elijah the prophet says, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. It's your sins that has caused the trouble in Israel, Ahab." you know, I've seen it so many times. I'm sure you have too. That the, the one who is in sin hates the one who's trying to bring righteousness. The one who's bringing destruction and death and judgment and fear and bondage and wickedness of every every kind on the household just despises the one who's trying to bring holiness and renewal and revival. And it's in that conflict that they see each other as the troublemaker. I've seen it over and over again. You know, you go visit some some house and there's... Poverty and wretchedness and and and, you know the husband is has drunk away five jobs. He's destroyed his family. His children are living in poverty. His wife is just tormented. And then his wife attends church one day seeking answers from God. And she fills out the card and says, I'd like a visit from the pastor. And so the pastor goes to visit them and says, here I am to visit. I'm the pastor. And, And that man will look at the pastor and say, oh, this woman is driving me crazy. She troubles me. She's ruining everything. She makes me so unhappy. And in just a moment, with just a cursory examination, you see the reality of the situation. This guy is making himself, his wife, and everybody within reach of him unhappy. But in his eyes, the one reaching for righteousness is the troublemaker. Oh, let me tell you, if this nation ever needed troublemakers, we need them now. We need a generation of blood bots, Bible believing, Holy Spirit filled, tongues talking, troublemakers. This nation needs to be turned upside down for God. We need teenagers that will be troublemakers for God. We need businessmen that will trouble the business community. We need businesswomen that know how to pray and believe God for a revival in their companies. We need people that will constantly be a a thorn in the side of a nation that has gone mad with sin. And I don't mean by being a, 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 a jerk for Jesus. You know, How many of you ever met a jerk for Jesus? You know what I'm talking about? You know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being in a, a person that's hard to get along. I'm talking about a person who lives such a life that honors God in such, such a way that the world around them, that that shines light on the darkness in their lives and they say, I don't like that light, you're a troublemaker. That's what I'm talking about. You know, there's an old cartoon that has two lions laying out in front of the Roman Colosseum back in ancient Rome. There's an old lion and there's a young lion. And the old lion turns to the young lion and says, so Christians give your heartburn, huh? Well, let me tell you, Christians give all of us heartburn. Listen to me. We, we in a society where sin is called righteousness and righteousness is called sin, a voice of holiness always appears to be a troublemaker. Always. In a society where business practices of deep, unethical disorder are the rule and not the exception a a businessman who intends to operate his business to honor god and to fill out his income tax forms properly and to live according to ethics and morality that person appears to be a troublemaker in the situation it's like a young man who had worked in a factory in north georgia and he said that there there was a certain way in which the, the the orders were placed with the home office but the problem was that they couldn't get enough raw materials to make their product unless their sales were at a certain level. But if they they, uh, didn't have the needed raw materials, then their manufacturing level fell lower. And when their manufacturing level fell lower, then their sales fell lower so it was just a sort of a declining spiral the way it was set up and because of that instead of actually dealing with the issue in the company and trying to make changes there because of that it had become the common practice in that industry to falsify sales reports and they would send these falsified sales reports to the home office uh, and therefore when the sales reports were higher then they were able to order more raw materials and therefore they were able to get uh, what they needed to be able to escalate their manufacturing. And then when the sales actually happened, they would go back and rub out all of the false sales reports and then put in the, the real ones. So they, so they would always turn in a false sales report at the beginning of the month, hoping that they were able to have enough sales to turn in a true report at the end of the month. Well, this young man who was, happened to be second in charge in the factory he went to the plant manager and he said, he said, I can't do this anymore. He said, I just can't do this. This is lying. I mean, they were just making up names and feeding false sales transactions in the computer and saying it, sending it to the home office. And he said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And the general manager said, well, what does it hurt? How does this hurt you? And he said, well, it doesn't hurt me, and I don't know that it hurts anybody, but it does damage to my soul, and I, and I, I know it hurts God. I'm, it's lying. I'm just not going to do it. And the general manager said, if you won't do this, you won't work here. The young, young man's livelihood was on the line. And, and you won't believe what he said. The, that general manager looked him right in the eyes. On the, uh, at the end of this conversation, he said, Why do you have to be such a troublemaker? You know what? If we're going to have a revival in this country, and God knows we need one, God knows we need one. And I'm not talking about six great nights of services down at the local church. I'm talking about a sustained move of God. Uh, If we're we're ever going to have revival in this country, it is only going to come when common, ordinary Christians rise up out of the dust of death and say, we are done with business as usual. Revival will only come when Christians, out of desperation, begin to cry out. We want a move of God. We we want an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We'll pray the price, as Terry Teckle says. We'll do what needs to be done. We'll believe what needs to be believed. We'll preach what needs to be preached. We'll live as we need to live. Even if we're branded as troublemakers, even if we're branded as people that are constantly giving the world heartburn, what is that to us? There must be a move of God. And I'm not just asking for people to be saved. I'm asking God, I'm believing for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I'm asking God that hearts will be stirred, that consciences will be goaded by the Holy Spirit. I'm praying that men will be awakened in the middle of the night uh, and their sleep will be troubled because of the conviction of sin that rests upon their soul, that businesses will be turned upside down. Anything it takes, anything it takes that will see a move of God. I believe that God must trouble this nation. I believe that God must stir things up. Because we need God to move in a powerful way. You know, I heard about a, a story about two businessmen uh, in Washington, Georgia. Until till I heard the story, I didn't even know there was a Washington, Georgia. But th- these two businessmen brought a man to the altar during some revival services that were being held at their church. They had one, one, one was on each arm of this man, and they just plunked him right down in the altar and said to the evangelist, all right, pray for him. <laughs> the evangelist said, all right, friend, do you want me to pray for you? And the man said, no, I didn't want to come tonight, and I don't want to be at this altar. These men brought me down here, and I want out of here. And the evangelist said, well, are you saved? He said, And the man said, I'm not saved. I don't want to get saved. I'm not ready for this. And the evangelist looked at him and he said, well, before you leave, will you let me pray that God will make you ready? He said, sure, I'll let you pray that. Pray anything you want. He said, are you sure then that I can pray this? You're willing for God to bring you to a place of readiness for the gospel? And he said, pray anything you want, preacher. Just pray so I can get out of here. And the evangelist said, he, he just felt the Lord giving a liberty to pray this way, so he laid his hands on the, that man's head and, and he, he began to pray. And he said, God, I'm asking you to turn this man's life upside down. Do anything it takes, God. Bless him or break him. God, if it takes divine health or sickness to make him ready, do it. If you have to bring him to his deathbed, if you have to take his business, Do whatever it takes, oh God. Do anything it takes to bring him to the place where in brokenhearted need, he cries out to you. Bring him to the place where he says, now I'm ready. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And that man, after he finished praying, he just got up and he stormed out of that church. Six weeks later, the evangelist got a phone call at his house at about 11.30 at night. And uh, he answered the phone. There was a man on the other end of the line and he was... He was just blubbering into the phone, just crying and weeping. And all he said was, call it off. Call it off. The man was just in hysterics. And the evangelist, he didn't know who this was calling him. You know, it was before the days of caller ID or anything. And he didn't know what in the world was going on. So he said, calm down, calm down. Who are you? He said, I'm the man you prayed with in the church in Washington, Georgia. Don't you remember me? He said, oh, now I do. How is everything? How is everything? And the man said, "Terrible! My family is in ruins. My wife has left me and moved back to Ohio. I've gone completely bankrupt. I'm living in a shabby room uh, in in the back of somebody's house." He said, "Either come down here and lead me to Jesus, or call it off." And the evangelist he got in his car and drove two and a half hours and prayed with that man in Washington, Georgia, for that man to receive the Lord, and God restored his life. Everything that had been taken, God restored to his life. His wife moved back home. Their marriage was restored. God gave him a fine job. Everything is blessed. But you know what? I believe that sometimes it is a ministry of love to trouble the situation, to just turn it upside down. You know, I remember hearing the story of Annie McPherson, she was the, uh, 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 of the Foursquare Church. She was one of the founding people of the Foursquare Church, Annie McPherson. She used to have a very unusual <clears throat> prayer ministry with the wives of drunkards and the wives of backsliders and the wives of sinners. And they would come into her daytime meeting, the wives would, and she would, she would ask them, are, are, are you willing for God to do whatever it takes for him to be saved, for your husband to be saved and filled with the Holy Spirit? And they'd say yes. And so they would write down their names on, uh, of, of these men, and she would lay her hand on the paper, each paper, and she would pray. Say, say one of them's name was Bob Jones, okay? She, she would say, all right, God, my hand is on the name of Bob Jones. And she would pray. Either kill him or fill him. <laughs> That's pretty extreme. And they say that news of that prayer that, that would, would scatter throughout the community and that, that that night when they prayed that, all these husbands would be in the service and come in and get saved. And they, they say that the husbands in Los Angeles feared the prayers of Annie McPherson more than they feared the police. Well, God, give us some more troublemakers. Give us some more prophets of God that are willing to stand up in the face of a society that's gone mad with sin. You know, where are we different than Israel in America? Where, how are we different? Aren't we throwing our babies alive into the fire of Moloch through abortion? Aren't we destroying our homes and families? Aren't we worshiping false gods and following false prophets? I mean, what's the difference between us and the people of Israel during the time of Ahab? You know, I'm here to tell you, a revival is no longer optional for the United States. It's not whether or not a revival would be good. It's whether or not God will allow America to survive without a revival. We've got to have a revival. <clears throat> and we've got to quit this prissy, sissified praying for revival. Where we say, oh God, we just ask for revival. Bless this service tonight in Jesus' name, amen. The only thing that's going to bring revival is broken-hearted Repentance. I mean, wet-eyed, bent-kneed repentance, praying and crying out, oh God, save us, save this nation, save this church, save my family, save my baby, save the children. Real prayer, real revival prayer. You know, Elijah finally said, we've got to do something. He looked at the nation around him and he said, we've got to do something. We've got to call on God. We've got to call the nation to repentance. We've got to call the king to repentance. And Elijah acted. He moved. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Elijah gathered the whole nation. You know, I I tell you, I can see this scene like I was there. And regardless of of what you young people think, I I really wasn't there. I just looked like I was there. Um, I'm not that old. I was just born just right after the Civil War ended. Uh, But but not quite that old. But I, I, I tell you, I've seen it in my mind's eye. I can see the high drama of it, I, the, the glory of it, the power of it. I mean, here's Elijah, 450 priests of Baal, 400 priests of Asher, 850 false priests all together, and King Ahab and his entourage and the royal court, the priests, the kings, noblemen, the rich, the high, and the mighty, and before them are scattered down the sides of Mount, Car- Car- Mount Carmel where the multiplied thousands of the host of Israel. Men, fathers, heads of households who hadn't led their families in prayer in years were there. People whose lives had been lived in wickedness and sin were there. Lost, hurting, and confused people who had been following the leadership of King Ahab, they were there. There were people there who were longing, who were aching deep within themselves for something high and holy. But not knowing how to find it. Not knowing how to pray This is the heartbeat of America today, confused, disoriented, not knowing what to trust, not knowing what's really of God, not knowing what's really holy, not not knowing what's really of Jesus, not knowing what's really of the Holy Spirit. There are people who read Christian books, maybe even read their Bible, and then put them down and read the horoscope in the newspaper, confusion. Confusion. That's what I I see in this story. I don't see uh, so much the rebellion of sin in in Israel, but I see the sadness of sin, the confusion of sin. I see a nation that simply lost its moorings, it slipped away from the foundation stone of its faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Elijah looks at these people scattered in the valley, and his heart breaks because he sees homes, Families and people who are disoriented. He sees the lost and the wounded and the confused. He sees people asking, is God real? Is God real? That's what they're asking in their heart. They're, they're, is there really a God? Is, is, is God real? Or is, what about Baal? Is Baal real? It's, it's, it's what about all these priests that I see here? When, when there are 450 people telling you that Baal is real, it's confusing. With all the power of the government, Standing behind them, it's confusing. I mean, look at Ahab with his royal robe. Look at the crown of gold on his head. Look at all the noblemen. Look at all the princes. Look at the beautiful ladies that are with him. Look at all the beautiful things that they have. And here on this side are all these priests. 450 priests of Baal with beautiful robes and all the splendor of it all. And then on the other side, what's there? There's this one little old skinny cockamamie prophet who's crying out repent 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 they don't know what to think but to the human eye it looks like baal has a lot more going for him elijah says to the priests and the prophets of baal he says here's what we'll do let's just put it before god you make an altar Right here, you slay a bull, put the pieces of the bull on the altar, but don't light the fire underneath it and and just pray. And I'll do the same. I'll pray to the God of Abraham. You pray to the God of Baal, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And the people all standing around said, that sounds good to us. I'm sure they were a little excited to see it. Then he turns to the people. I'm just struck by the question. He turns to the people and he says, how long? will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver? Wondering, maybe it's Baal, maybe it's God, maybe sin, maybe righteousness, maybe self-indulgence. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow Him. If Baal is God, then then go for Him. You you know, in America, we're just not used to that kind of confrontational faith. We've gotten a little soft and flabby with our faith. You know, it's... Like a pastor who went to make a visit, he went to visit a woman named Mabel. I'm glad that that's, that was her truly her name and glad we don't have any Mabels in our church. But um, not because I have anything against the name Mabel, because then I wouldn't be able to use the name in the story. <laughs> because you'd all be thinking, is that our Mabel? No, no it's not. But anyway, he, he, this pastor went to make a visit to this woman and he took a man from his church with him. Uh, who was very prominent in the church and, and he told this man, he said, this lady has been attending our church uh, pretty regularly for about eight weeks. She's given her life to Jesus. I've invited her to be baptized and, and join the church. And so they went out there to visit her and he said, he said to the woman, the pastor said, Mabel, this is, this is the, the, the third time I've come out to see you and talk with you. You've accepted Christ as your Savior and I've invited you to be baptized and join the church. And she said, well... Well, I, I don't know. I just, I just can't make my mind up. I, just, I don't know what to think. I'm afraid if I come, my husband won't come. I'm, I'm afraid uh, of joining the church without him. I just just don't know what to think. She said, I think what I'd like to do is just come occasionally and visit, but not really get committed to it. And at that, the pastor jumped up and, and he slapped his hands together, just about gave the man with him a heart attack. And he jumped up, slapped his hands together and said, No. He, he, he said, no, by the living God, no, this county is just full of churches. Choose one of them, but not mine. I've had it with members like that. He said, either get in or get out. And then he turned around and walked out. The man followed him out to the car and he got in the car and the pastor, you know, who, the man who was with the pastor, he, he couldn't think of what to say to the pastor. It was this awkward silence. The pastor looked at the man and he said, well, you, you think I blew it, don't you? And he said, well, pastor, I, 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 don't know, I don't know if you blew it or not, but I would say I'm not expecting this lady on Sunday. <laughs> and so the pastor said, well, i just tell you something. I'm, I'm weary of that kind of half-hearted religion. If her husband is her God, then God can't use her. If God is God, then let her join and get on with it. And I'm just sick to death of the wavering opinion. You know, the, the next Sunday... The good news is that little lady presented herself at the altar of that church, was baptized with water, and joined the church. And within six weeks, her teenage son and her husband both got saved. They were amazed to see real Christianity at work. That's what Elijah is saying here. He's saying to the nation of Israel, either get on with it or get off. Let's either join God or join Baal, but quit this halfway on and off thing. You know, there are all kinds of people that are, that are trying to live this way, all kinds of people that have one foot squarely on the cross and the, and the other foot planted squarely in the world and, and they're hesitating, they can't make their mind up. They don't know whether to, to go with God or whether to go with the world. You know, I heard, I heard about a, a story about a little boy who, who loved to go to the rodeo with his dad and down in Texas. And, the thing that he enjoyed most about the, the rodeo, how many of you have ever been to a rodeo? You know, we, we used to live out west, and Reno had a big rodeo we'd go to every year. One of the things they do at the beginning of a rodeo, they, they do this, this grand parade. Anybody remember ever seen one of the grand parades at a rodeo? And so, you know, all the music is playing in the background and the cowboys all come out riding around and lights would shine and the cowboys would ride around the circle with sequins on their shirts, glistening in the lights. It was just, And he, this little boy, it was just so exciting for him. But, but, but what he really loved, at the front of the parade, there was this one man who would put one foot on one horse and one foot on another horse and ride around the arena arenas, on these two white stallions. And the fringe on his white shirt was just flapping in the wind. He'd have an American flag in one hand, and he'd be waving his big 10-gallon hat in the other hand, just, just riding it around, and the people would cheer and shout as he rode around, uh, standing on, with one foot on two horses. And the little boy thought to himself, whoa, wouldn't that be something to be able to do that? Wouldn't it be something to ride around the arena standing on two white horses with all the people yelling for you? Until one night, just as this man passed, passed by the stands, a child suddenly leaned over the rail and he waved a red jacket uh, in the air right in front of those horses. And all I can say is east was east and west was west. And, and that poor, that poor cowpoke, t- cowpoke tumbled behind those horses for about 150 yards and they took him off in an ambulance. And as that moment in that little boy's life that he learned a serious lesson. This lesson is this. It's dangerous to try to ride two horses at the same time. If, if the Lord is God, then serve him. If Jesus is Lord, then serve Him. Sir, listen to me. Ma'am, listen to me. You you can't be a Christian on Sunday morning and then tell the same jokes and talk the same way and tell the same lies and live the same life that your uh, unsaved friends do on Monday morning. It just won't work. Either serve God or quit pretending to serve Him. Either make Him the Lord of your life or quit playing the game. Get in or get out. It's as simple as that. And I know that seems hard. I know that seems hard, but that's the message that Elijah was trying to get across to the people here. I I, I know it's hard, but but I believe that this is the time in this moment where our culture, where our nation is, now is the time for this generation to stand up and be counted as followers of Jesus Christ. That's what Elijah was saying. And he was looking at a generation that was not unlike ours at all. If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. And I I love the next line. The Bible always amazes me with its understatement. Because Elijah says this, and the Bible says, but the people said nothing. You think? I bet they didn't. I bet everybody was afraid to move. Then the priests of Baal step up and they said, all right, let's see who's God. And the priests of Baal, oh, they they put on a great, great show in the flesh. They stacked the wood up perfectly. They went through all of their rituals and they paraded about in the the regalia of their false religion. They they killed the bull just right. They, They put the pieces stacked up in just perfect order. And they began their prayers and their incantations and their channeling and all the things that they were doing. They went through all the manipulations of the flesh and all the deceit of the mind. And it came to nothing says they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed out onto the altar. I think that's a significant verse because in, in false religion, your blood pours out. But in the, in the Christianity, it's his blood that pours out. Listen, when we have no faith in the blood that God supplies, we'll, we'll try to supply our own. It's called works Righteousness. When we no longer have faith in the bedrock gospel of the slain lamb of God, then we will try to provide a substitute. And it says that they cut themselves until the blood flowed out. You know, so many times I have poured out offerings in my lifetime on the altar of these false gods. I know you have too. My life, my my time, my youth, my energy. So many things I gave them and they never gave me anything. Never gave me anything. They sucked the life out of me, nearly destroyed my life, tried to steal my soul and my sanity and never paid me a dime. Listen to me. I want you to hear this very clearly and understand this very clearly. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He he promises everything, but he never delivers. He offers all kinds of satisfaction and hope and fulfillment and joy and happiness, but he never delivers anything but stealing and killing and destroying lies. Filthy, nasty lies like like try this drug. You'll never be happier in your whole life, and all it does is destroy your mind and rob your happiness until kids. Some kid winds up dead in the gutter somewhere with another kid standing over him with a smoking gun in his hand, and all the while satanic forces are laughing over both of them, laughing at the parents who are weeping at the funeral, laughing at the par- other parents who are crying at the jail, laughing at the police when they arrive to make the arrest, and the boys shoots at them because he's in a drug-crazed stupor. Satanic evil promises fulfillment through through sexual immorality and and never delivers anything but death and disease and misery and guilt and fear and condemnation and envy and broken marriages and hatred and isolation and loneliness. These are false gods of this world that, that never pay a dime toward what they promise. They just take and take and take and take and take and we pour our blood out on their altars. The text says that after all of this that these prophets fell exhausted on their altar. Then Elijah, I love this guy, it's my favorite part of the whole story, he just begins mocking them. I don't know what that says about me, that's, that's my, maybe that's I need to repent over the fact that that's the part I like that they were, that he began mocking them. He's like, come on boys! Come on, I, I know your God is real. He's, he's probably just on a vacation. I already told you the other thing that he said that, they, that he might be doing. He said, maybe, maybe he's asleep. That's it, he's asleep. Let's just wake him up. Baal, oh Baal, Baal, your prophets are crying to you. Baal. You know, he's just yelling, wake up wherever you are. And he did this until the prophets of Baal began to feel really silly. You know, you... I just think about this. Wouldn't it be really funny one time to just go into the most, most? She's yelling, yelling out now in response to me. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Hey, it's my fault. I set the example. (laughs) I love it. There's an example right there, Uh, parents. Your children learn by example. What you do teaches them one thing, no matter. What you're doing, it's teaching them something. Anyway, that's a whole different story, a whole different message. But I started to say, you know, I, th- I think it'd be funny to go into uh, the most exclusive bar and the most expensive country club and, and then just jump up on the bar in that place and begin to, to shout out, all right, God of alcohol, make somebody happy in here. Come on, I know you can do it. How, do you, how long do you think that would last? About 30 seconds before they're like, out, troublemaker. Finally, after all of their efforts, they say to Elijah, all right, let's just see if your God can do any better. And Elijah stacks up an altar very similar to theirs, but, but I want you to notice the words of the scripture. It says he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. He didn't build anything new. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. The first step to revival is to repair the altar of holiness and prayer. If, if you've lost God, go back to the last place you saw Him, Re- repair the altar. Set up the old landmarks. Don't be ashamed. Like he said in Revelation, go back and do the things you did in the beginning. Go back to God. Stack up the same old stones. You know, we always want something new. We want some, you know, some fancy thing. We want some new pop theology. Repair the altar of God. There's just no other way back to revival. We have to fall on our faces before the living God and repair the altar of holiness Then Elijah having slain the bull placed its pieces on the altar. Listen to this. It says that Elijah called for water to be poured on the altar. Three times. Three times. They do it, and and the whole thing is soaked. The animal is soaked. the, The wood is soaked. The stones are soaked. The dirt around the base of the altar is a muddy mess, and there's water sitting in the trench that they dug around the altar. The whole thing is saturated with water. Now I don't know everything that was in Elijah's mind when he did that, but I I think at least in part he must have been saying that this was a picture of Israel sin-soaked and saturated with evil. No one could imagine that you could set that that mess on fire even with a blowtorch completely soaked. And he says, here you are. Here, here's the useless, soggy mess of a nation that Israel is. You know, if I were an artist and, and could paint a picture, which I can't, I can't even do a straight stick figure. I'm telling you that right now. I have no artistic ability whatsoever. But if I could and I wanted to pic- paint a picture of contemporary America, I think I might paint a picture of the altar just before Elijah prayed. Soggy sacrifice, soaked wood, muddy ba- base, and, and, and a trench full of water. And he says, "There it is. This is you." In the natural, there is no hope of fire. In the natural, there is no hope of revival. In the carnal mentality, why would God bother by, by any means of national, or of, excuse me, rational thinking, even if God wanted to set it on fire, what hope of revival was there? What hope of revival is there in America? Drugs flow like water in the streets. Our babies are killing themselves. Do you know the number two cause of death for people between the ages of 15 to 24 is suicide? And the fourth most common cause of death in that age range is murder. And they rank ahead of leukemia, cancer, or other diseases. Our children are killing themselves. Abortion. 1.2 million babies aborted every year. These babies are slain by their mothers because they dared to be inconvenient. And don't lie to yourself for one moment that the abortion curse in America is because those babies are malformed or were the result of rape or anything like that. No, sir, not at all. In a recent study, it was determined that 98% of the abortions performed in America are elective and have nothing to do with rape, incest, or the health of the mother or the health of the baby. 98%. Don't buy into that lie. Those babies are sacrificed on the altar of pride and ego and arrogance and self-centeredness. Little innocent babies killed by their own mothers because they dared to be conceived at the wrong time. Crime rates are soaring. Gambling, prostitution, alcoholism. Millions and millions of man hours are lost every year because of alcoholism. Murder and violence are the norm. Murders and, 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 and are just, just the rate is soaring in cities across our nation. If there's ever been a picture of a nation where there's hardly a faint flicker of hope for a revival, it's America. America is a sin-soaked, saturated, waterlogged nation just like Israel Israel was. But you know what? Then it says that Elijah prayed. Oh, thank God for that. It was a simple prayer. All the prophets of Baal, they had gone through all of their rituals and all their incantations and all their chanting and all their dancing and all the extra stuff. Elijah said, I don't need to do any of that. I just need to pray a simple prayer. But, but, but Elijah lifted his face up toward God. And in essence, he prayed a prayer that just said, God, show these people that you're real, that you're the God of fire. Amen. And shwoop, just like that, a lightning bolt of God, a fireball from heaven. And the altar burst into a raging inferno. And the bull began to burn. And the wood began to burn. And it says that the stones began to burn. And then the water began to burn. And the flames looked down to the water in the trench. And the water in the trench burned like kerosene. Glory to God. The only thing is this. Listen, this is so important. God will send the fires of revival. He will send the fire revival. But listen, he will not send the fire of revival until the sacrifice is on the altar. The fire didn't come before the sacrifice was on the altar. Paul wrote the same thing. Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other versions, he says, I beg you to put your bodies on the altar of sacrifice. And he wants a living sacrifice. You know, the biggest problem of the living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. But he says, offer yourselves. Put the sacrifice on the altar. If you want the fire revival, put yourself on the altar. As long as we hold our lives and our homes and our nation to ourselves, then nothing can happen. But when we take it in whatever condition it's in and we put it on the altar of God, the fire comes. Deuteronomy says that everything that touches the altar is sanctified by the altar. We lay it up on the altar and we, we just pray the simple prayer that Elijah prayed. Oh God, send the fire. You know, there were 120 people in a rented upstairs room in Jerusalem, discouraged, disoriented, demoralized, having been told by Jesus that they're to take the world for Christ. And they have no more idea than a goose how to take the world for Christ. They hardly even know how to pray. They they don't know how to live. They don't even know how to preach. They feel waterlogged, soggy, bogged down in their sin. I mean, Simon Peter had denied Jesus with a curse in his mouth. For 10 days they prayed. 10 days. Oh, God, send the fire. Oh, God, send the fire. Oh, God, send the Holy Spirit. And they prayed and prayed and prayed until on the day of Pentecost, only Fifty brief days following the crucifixion of Jesus, the same lightning bolt, the same fire, the same revealed presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit fell on them. You see, God longs to send the Holy Spirit. In a church, in, in a family, in a household, in, in one individual person, in, in a body, in a ministry. God is longing. He is aching to pour out the Holy Spirit without measure. You know, we, we don't have to talk God into pouring out the Holy Spirit. He's aching to fill us with the Holy Spirit. There are people right here in this room that need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are people right here in this room that need the revival power of God in their own lives. And I want you to know, you don't have to beg God. You don't have to plead or cajole or anything else. You you just have to take the pitiful shreds of your life and lay it on his altar and say, oh God, there it is. Look what I've done with it. Fill me with your spirit. And the same thing will happen. That lightning bolt of God, that Pentecostal power will penetrate the veil and set your heart on fire. The same fire that hit the brow of Mount Carmel can hit your life and mine and our nation and the generation in which we live if, if we place our lives on the altar of repentance with broken hearts and pray. I tell you, it's not too late. It's not too late for for our nation. We can pray down fire. We can pray down the flames of revival. And I'm not not just talking about a few hysterical people getting saved. I'm talking about thousands and thousands of people falling on their faces before God, being washed of their sins and filled with the Holy Spirit and being turned into soul winners, plunged back into the streets, telling people about Jesus. I'm talking about Jesus becoming the number one topic of, of conversation among the people of this city and this state and this nation. Can you, can you imagine this scene? Can you imagine some drug addict stumbles into a place where he, he bought drugs last week with $300 in his hand and he says, I need some crack. And the guy that he used to buy his drugs from looks at him and says, you don't need crack. Man, I've got something better than that. I've got something more powerful from, from that than that. And he says, oh man, what have you got? And the man says, come back into the back room with me. Something happened. I found Jesus. You don't need drugs. You need Jesus. And the drug dealer leads the former buyer to Jesus. Can you imagine that? Can you even begin to imagine that? Because I know God can. I know God can. That's what, that's what we need, a revival. We need an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. But it's not going to happen if we continue to try to practice nice, comfortable, cozy religion. It's going to happen when we put the sacrifice of our lives, our homes, our reputation, and our minds on the altar of God, and we say, oh God, send the fire and consume me. Send the fire. Oh, how we need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. How I long to see it. How I weep for it. How I ache to see people absolutely deluged with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't know where you are, friend, in your life, in your relationships and your walk with God. You, you may be so close to God that you can feel Jesus' breath on your cheek. Or you may have gotten so far away from God that you think there's no hope for you. But Listen, if you will place the water, your waterlogged life that is in shreds on the altar of God and simply say, God, be the Lord of my life. Take everything and fill me with the Holy Spirit. I want you to know The God who answers by fire. He is God. Let me just say this. I I grew up, we're going to close with this. I grew up in the Assemblies of God. I knew the Lord as a child. I can remember even as a 12-year-old boy when we would sing the old hymn, the old rugged cross. I remember as a 10, 12-year-old boy singing that song and just weeping. I I thought that was normal. I thought everybody did that. But that was the Lord working in me. Nevertheless, even though I knew the Lord as a teenager, I slid into a place of sin and rebellion and even reached a point without going into the details, I reached a point where I denied that I even believed in Jesus. My life was soaked and saturated with sin. I looked at my life and I thought if God could give anybody the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't be me because I've gone too far. I won't go into the details today, but in June of 1980, my mom sort of worked behind the scenes, and let's just say she sort of cornered me into going to a youth camp. I went to that camp in southern Missouri, and during the entirety of the first service, I just felt the wooing of the Holy Spirit. I heard the the, the voice of the Savior just calling me back home. I felt the Holy Spirit drawing me. I sat there and he was working so powerfully. I I couldn't even concentrate on what the preacher was saying because all I wanted for him was to quit preaching and open the altar because I needed to get down to the altar. eventually he opened the altars and I took my broken, wounded, sin-drenched life to that altar. And I lifted that pitiful, shattered dream of a life to God and said, here it is, God. I've got nothing to give you but me. And as the tears flowed down my face and drenched the carpet at that altar, kneeling at the altar in the Southern Missouri Youth Camp, God saved me. God filled me with the Holy Spirit. He baptized me with his power. I'm telling you that, that from that moment on I, I I answered the same way the people at the foot of Mount Carmel answered. I said, the Lord he is God. I have felt the fire of God. The Lord he is God. And, and it's like and that fire came into my life and it has never gone out. That fire is shut up in my bones. The, the, the fire that changed my life. Fire that, that gave me a heart for God. Fire that, that gave me a longing for the things of God. Fire that made me preach fire that won't let me quit fire that fills me fire that makes me love the unlovely fire that gave me another chance in life fire that restored my soul fire that makes my heart burn with a holy passion for him and I don't ever want it to go out I'm here to tell you if God can do it in my life then I can tell you God can do it in anybody's life the word of God is true and his promises last forever. Luke eleven thirteen, 13 is real. He said, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I'm telling you that it's real. It's real in my soul. Let every man be a liar, but, God, but let God be true. I'm not ashamed of Pentecostal fire. I long for it. And I'm not talking about a a style of worship or a style of things. I'm talking about true holiness, true power of God moving in us and changing us, turning our lives upside down where we put ourselves on the altar. I long for that. I I ache for it. I weep for it. I'm not ashamed of Pentecostal flame. Oh, God, give us more of that. Set us on fire. I'm, I'm tired of opting for respectability. I'm tired of worrying about how others perceive us. I'm I'm through with it. God, send the fire. God, send the fire. Lord, send the Holy Spirit. Lord, set us on fire. Would you bow your head? I want to pray with you. Lord, as we stand in your presence, Lord, we, we want to... Stand on the mountain of revival like Elijah. And we want the fire of God to consume our lives in a way that glorifies you because God, as you consumed that sacrifice that day, the entire nation took notice and they said, look at that. The Lord is God. And God, we want you, you, you to, your fire to burn in us in such a way that the people around us look at our lives and say, look at that. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Only God could do that in somebody's life. And God, I pray if there's anybody in this room or anybody that's watching online and they're not where they need to be with you, I pray, God, that in Jesus' name that you would you would begin to woo them. Lord, just draw them the way you did me at that, at that altar, that you, they'd begin to just have this longing to say, I've got to get things right with God. I know there's more. I know there's more, and I want it. I want it all. I pray, God, that in the name of Jesus, that you would, you would send the fire. As we take our broken, tattered, sin-soaked, pitiful lives and lay them on the altar today, God. I pray that you would consume. Consume us, O God. Let let us be consumed with your glory, consumed with a passion for you. Set us on fire. Send the fire, O God. With heads bowed and eyes closed and there's nobody looking around, listen, I don't know where anybody is. All I know is I needed this message. I don't know about you. I just know that I needed the reminder to say, oh, God, I need the fire, your fire burning brighter than ever before in me. We look around at the nation. We look around at things that are going on. And it's, you know what? It's easy to curse the darkness. But it's another thing to light a candle. You know what? We need the fire of God to be, be, begin burning in us so brightly that it lights the darkness. This morning, if you're here, or maybe you're watching online, and you say, "Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me because I want God. I want God to light something new in me. Maybe maybe you're, you're, the fire has grown a little dim. The embers have need to be stirred a little bit. Maybe that's it. Or maybe, maybe you're here and maybe you're watching and you and you're just know you're not where you need to be with the Lord. That you're, 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 you're living in a, your life is sin-soaked like that altar was. And you may even be thinking to yourself, I can't ever come back to God. I've gone too far, but I want you to know, if you will put it on the altar, the fire will come. He will, he will change your life. I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on. I don't need to know. That's between you and God. But if you'd say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me today. I want the fire of God to come. I want the fire of God to burn in my life. I want him to do what he wants to do. I'm tired of just walking through emotions and doing the same old thing. I want the fire of God. I want revival. If that's you, slip your hand up right where you are. Oh, their hands all over the place. If you're online, you can just say, pray for me. All over the place, their hands. Just keep... If if you haven't raised it and you feel that God's speaking to you, raise it up. Yes, yes, all over the place. Oh, God. Oh, God. Stand together with me. Father, lift your hands to him right now. Everyone stand together. Lift your hands to him. And begin to say, put your life on his altar. Right where you are, say, oh, God, I'm going to put my broken, tattered life on the altar. Just lay it on the altar and say, oh, God, send the fire. Just send the fire. God, just send the fire. Send the fire, oh God. Lift it up to him and say, Lord, I'm open. These altars are open. One has already come to this altar. If you need to come to this altar, you feel free to come. Never feel intimidated. Don't be afraid if you need to come and say, Lord, here I am. I'm laying myself on the altar again. Just in your own words right now, just lift your life up to him. Lord, I I come to you. And Lord, once again, I say to you, Lord, here's my life. Here's my life, Lord, I lay it on the altar. I want to be a living sacrifice. I want you to consume my life and let let your glory shine through me in such a way that the world will see who you really are. God, I pray that in Jesus' name that For every person that's responding, every person that's reaching out, every person that's saying, here I am, God, send me. Here I am, God, fill me. Every person that's laying their life on the altar right now, God, I'm asking, oh God, send the fire. And I'm not talking about an emotional moment. I'm talking about the real power of God that does something deep in us, whether we feel a deep emotion or not, that we trust you and we say, God, you're you're working and God, I pray, you would do that in us right now. Lord, those that have never received the blessing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but are hungry, I pray God, that as they open their hearts to you, that you would begin to pour your Spirit out on them, that you would baptize them, that you would fill them with your power, that you would anoint them, O God. It's not about speaking in tongues, God. It is about being filled with the power of God to be a useful witness, to be an empowered witness in this world. God, fill us with your Spirit. For the one, Lord God, that is saying, my life is sin-soaked. Or maybe not so much that, or maybe they just say, I've just kind of been on the sidelines and haven't really been in or out. Today, God, we say we're all in. We're all in, God. We're all in. We're all in. We're all in, Lord. We will not waver between two opinions. The Lord is God. And we will serve Him. We will serve Him. Father, we just thank you for your presence and your power. And Lord, rather than have a formal conclusion, I just pray, God, that if we need to go, Lord God, that will as we'll be dis- dismissed, that we'll go as we go, but as we go, Lord, that you would help us to walk in your spirit, Lord. And those that need to continue to pray, Lord, just have your way. Have your way in us, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.